Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. The case we have for you today is one that is easy to get lost in. Nothing is what it seems and no one is telling the whole truth. Somehow everyone is at fault and no one can be trusted. In this case, a family goes through the unimaginable, but is then given a miracle beyond belief, only to have their joy ripped away from them once again. Nicholas Barclay was born December 31, 1980, and raised in San Antonio, Texas, by single mother Beverly Dollarhide. Beverly had two older children from a prior relationship, Carrie and Jason, who were already in their teens when Nicholas was born. Beverly struggled with a heroin addiction, but according to her daughter Carrie, she wasn't a bad mother. Carrie said, quote, She was maybe the most functioning drug addict. We had nice things, a nice place, and we never went without food, end quote. Maybe that's true, but Beverly also worked the night shift at a local convenience store and slept during the day. Many who knew Beverly or her children knew the kids went largely unsupervised, left to do whatever they wanted, sometimes with disastrous results. At the age of 13, Jason was filling a lawnmower with gasoline while smoking a cigarette when the fumes ignited and he was engulfed in flames. Jason recovered from the accident, but his face and body were permanently scarred. By the time Nicholas was 13 years old, he had a reputation as a troubled boy and had his share of run-ins with the law. He managed to rack up a juvenile record for crimes like breaking and entering, stealing, missing school too frequently, and even threatening his school teachers. He was a small kid and looked several years younger than his actual age. Maybe in an attempt to look tougher or more grown up, he had some of his friends give him some stick-and-poke tattoos. Nicholas was also, according to Beverly, verbally and physically abusive towards his mother. Police had been called multiple times by neighbors when the screaming matches between mother and son would get out of hand. When police would break up the fights, Beverly would claim Nicholas attacked her and police took her word for it, given the angry teen they had before their eyes. However, on several occasions, teachers at Nicholas's school made reports of bruises on his body, indicating that he might have been the one being beaten at home. Eventually, Beverly felt like she couldn't handle him anymore and asked Jason to move in with them to help her with Nicholas. Jason was 24 and living with a cousin in Utah at the time. Jason was trying to break out as an artist and musician. He never finished high school, but people who knew him said he was very intelligent. Beverly was hoping that Jason could help her take control of Nicholas and bring some discipline to the household to curb his acting out. Jason wasn't necessarily the best candidate, though, as Jason himself had a serious cocaine addiction and was known to have a violent temper. Yeah, I'm not sure bringing your other troubled son is going to help the other one in any way. It doesn't necessarily seem like a Nicholas problem. It seems like an environment problem. I hate to judge anyone's parenting. And yes, I understand there are kids out there that are seriously out of control. But it sounds like the mom wasn't providing structure, care, or support for her child. You can't really blame a neglected kid for being angry. I mean, the background on this family was a lot to unpack, so I'm sure trouble followed in some way. You know it. 
One sunny day in June of 1994, Nicholas walked a little over a mile to a neighborhood park to play basketball with some friends. When he was done, he called home to see if his mom would come pick him up. Jason answered the phone and told Nicholas their mom was still sleeping before she would need to head out for her graveyard shift at the Dunkin' Donuts, and he wasn't going to wake her up. He told his little brother to just walk home, but Nicholas never made it home that evening. It's suspected the last day he was seen was Friday, June 10th, 1994, but he had a habit of running away, so his family didn't worry when he didn't come home. Beverly finally called police to report Nicholas missing three days later on Monday, June 13th. Nicholas was scheduled for a court appearance the next day, which could have led him to being sent to a group home. Given the boy's reputation with law enforcement and the scheduled court appearance, authorities were slow to respond. They assumed he was simply running away from the inevitable and he would show up in a day or two. Nicholas was a small boy for his age, standing only 4 foot 8 and weighing only 80 pounds. He had been wearing a white shirt, purple pants, and carrying a pink backpack, so police thought he'd be hard to miss, and they would see him around town eventually and take him home like all the other times before. This time was different than his previous attempts to run away, though. He didn't take any clothes or personal belongings, and he only had $5 on him when he left the house that day. He also never left for more than one day in the past, and it had already been far more than that by the time he was reported missing. Finally, a missing persons investigation was opened. There were few leads. Without a credit card, phone, or vehicle to track, he seemed untraceable. With only $5 on him at the time of his disappearance, police considered it unlikely that he was paying for a room somewhere. Their best guess was that he hitchhiked somewhere, but that meant that finding him was even more unlikely. A teen that takes no personal belongings is certainly not a runaway. No phone or change of clothes is very weird. And three days? Seriously? They even admitted that his previous runaways only lasted a day. That sounds more like he used to run off to cool down or escape his home life for a little bit. But he always came home not long after that. How can you possibly not get worried for three days? Oh no, something's definitely up. In September of that year, three months after Nicholas went missing, Jason called the police again, claiming that he had seen his brother trying to break into their garage. However, by the time police arrived at the scene, Jason claimed that Nicholas had already fled. Police searched the neighborhood for hours but didn't find any sign of him. This sighting helped solidify the idea that Nicholas left home willingly and was out there somewhere just living his best life on his own. The case went cold and life continued on as it had before. Conflict and domestic disputes between Jason and Beverly in the months after Nicholas's disappearance escalated. Beverly blamed Jason for making Nicholas walk home that day and never forgave him for the loss of her baby. Police were frequently called to break up their fights and were never sure who the attacker would be at any given time. It's almost like Beverly knows more than she's letting up. And why wouldn't Jason stop his brother from leaving? It has been three months. So shady. It also goes to show that it doesn't really matter which kid is in her home, the police are still being called for domestic disputes. Beverly's the common denominator in these abuse calls against her children. Yeah, nothing's really changed in that household. So at this point, everyone thinks he's alive and well somewhere in town. Oh, just get this. 
Three years after Nicholas disappeared in October of 1997, the FBI received a call from a man saying Nicholas was somehow in a youth shelter in Linares, Spain. The caller went on to say that it had taken a while to get the boy to tell them his name. Apparently, he escaped from a child sex ring operation and was pretty traumatized. Police called the family to inform them of this miracle, and immediately Carrie's job put up the money so she could fly to Spain and confirm if it was truly her long-lost little brother. When Carrie arrived, the man she was presented with took her off guard. Sure, it had been three years, and Nicholas would be 16 now, but could he really have changed that much? Carrie tried to connect with him, but he was extremely closed off and refused to speak. She pulled out a family photo album she had brought with her and began sharing stories of their family to try to bring him out of his shell. It started to work, and at one point he quietly asked, Is Grandpa still an asshole? They laughed together, and Carrie felt deep down that this lost boy was in fact the brother she had been hoping he would be. They flew back to San Antonio together, and she made up a mattress on the floor of her own son's room and tried to make him as comfortable as possible. The differences between how he was now and how his family remembered him raised some questions. Over the next several months, he remained closed off and spoke very little. When he did talk, he had a strange French accent and didn't know things he should have known. The once explosive and angry boy was now creepily calm, and most chalked that up to the trauma he must have suffered. Strangest of all were his physical differences. The light blonde hair started growing out and was clearly had brown roots, and his once bright blue eyes had somehow turned brown. No, ma'am. <laughs> I understand if the boy got taller or his weight changed, but his hair and eyes changing is a huge red flag. It's literally impossible. There's no way. <laughs> How did he even explain that? He had quite the story to tell and had an explanation for everything. He claimed that while he was walking home from the park that day, he was kidnapped, driven to the airport, and tossed on a plane to Europe. His kidnappers, who he claimed to be part of a Pizzagate-style high-society child sex trafficking ring, forced him into prostitution. He said he was experimented on injected with chemicals that changed his hair and eye color to brown. He claimed that he and the other children were beaten horribly if they dared speak English and were only allowed to speak French. He was eventually able to escape and was later discovered by European law enforcement wandering around a train station in Spain. He did, however, have the same three homemade tattoos as Nicholas, and apparently that was enough for his family. They welcomed him wholeheartedly and never questioned his validity. Anyone can copy a missing person's tattoos because they're usually mentioned on the missing person's poster. Right. And not everyone could so easily accept the new Nicholas, especially law enforcement. The media that had largely ignored the story of the missing boy now jumped at the chance to be a part of the reunion story. Charlie Parker, a private investigator that had worked closely with the family, helped organize the recording of a happy reunion. Once meeting him, though, Charlie was highly suspicious of the man that returned from Spain claiming to be Nicholas. He started trying to convince Beverly to help him run the man's fingerprints or to test his DNA against hers, just to confirm once and for all he really was Nicholas, but she refused to go along with it. She insisted this was her son and she was going to stand by him. But after two months of being back in America, he started to fall apart. 
he became moody and distant. Shortly before Christmas that year, Nicholas went into the bathroom, grabbed a razor, and began to mutilate his own face. He was put in a psychiatric ward for several days for observation. Well, at least whoever this is is in a ward for a few days and away from that family. Shamma will tell us how this miracle-turned-nightmare got even worse after this short break. Charlie was worried that the man claiming to be Nicholas was insane and the family could be in danger. He decided to compare photos of the Nicholas who had originally gone missing and the one who returned home, and he found that their ears were different shapes and sizes. Ears are like fingerprints and that no two people have exactly the same ears. They are completely unique. These odd inconsistencies were intensified by the fact that the man adamantly refused to give any samples of fingerprints or blood for the investigation. The ear-shaped discovery was enough to get a court order to force the person claiming to be Nicholas to submit both to police. Just as Charlie had suspected, fingerprints and DNA proved that this man was not the long-lost Nicholas Barkley. He was a 23-year-old French con man with a long rap sheet as a serial imposter. Frederick Pierre Borden was well-known and wanted by Interpol for assuming more than 500 identities over his lifetime. He was so well-known, in fact, that he was a minor celebrity in Europe, known by the nickname The Chameleon. A 23-year-old French man pretending to be a 16-year-old kid from Texas? He was either really confident in his acting skills, or he had a lot of faith that the family would go along with it. I mean, they pretty much did go through with it, though. (laughs) I don't know why, but him having a nickname freaks me out even more. Yeah, he impersonated 500 children during his life. How is that even possible? Well, thanks to his thin frame and childish features, Frederick was able to pretend to be any number of kids in the worldwide registry of missing children. What people wanted to know was, what did he get out of it? Nicholas's family didn't have any money, so he couldn't have been trying to scam them. For Frederick, the con was simple. He got a place to sleep, food, a bed, and a family, at least for a little while. As a child, he was abandoned by his father and grew up an outcast. Frederick started creating fantasy lives for himself to get attention. In his teens, he started traveling the nearby towns, pretending to be a lost child, and seeing how far he could take the lie until he was caught or got bored with it. He became addicted to the feeling of being brought in from the cold and cared for in a way his true family had never given him. As he grew more confident, Frederick started investigating missing orphans and taking on identities of these real people. They had no families to confirm or deny if he was telling the truth, and just like that, he moved between hostels and juvenile care facilities all over Europe, gaining sympathy. That was how he chose to survive in the world, even once he was a grown man. He had pulled similar tricks in Belgium, Spain, Bosnia, Germany, Ireland, England, Italy, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Portugal, Austria, Slovakia, Denmark, France, and Sweden. When European youth homes became wise to his tactics, he decided it was time to take his act to America. This was the first time he had taken on the task of convincing a family he was someone they knew well, though. Keeping up the act took a toll on him. The other acts hadn't. He saw what he did to these families as victimless crimes. He didn't steal or physically hurt any of them. All he did was give them the joy of helping a child in need, even if it was only pretend. What he didn't seem to understand was that for the family of a real missing child, his true identity was a nightmare. Once it was proven he wasn't Nicholas, Frederick was arrested and sentenced to six years in jail for fraud and perjury. Wow, that is insane. 
He wasn't even scamming them for money, just for the love he never got from his own family. Still creepy as hell. I feel like that makes it even worse. He gave families hope in exchange for, what, love? That's a horrible thing to do to someone. I completely agree. Okay, so the imposter was arrested and put in jail for a little while, at least. Yeah. However, Frederick had more to say about the Barkley family. He told the FBI he was certain that the family knew he was an imposter the entire time. He believed they used his return as a cover for the fact that they had actually murdered Nicholas themselves all those years ago. He especially pointed the finger at Jason. He claimed that he was around Jason and he didn't look at him at all, except once after he first arrived in America. Jason didn't ask him any questions or welcome him home. He simply looked at him in the face and said, good luck, and walked out. Frederick got the feeling Jason was saying good luck to keeping up his ruse. The FBI and the private investigator Charlie grew suspicious that Frederick might be onto something. How could they have not recognized the fact that he was an imposter, especially an imposter that didn't even share the same physical features as Nicholas and was several years older than he would have been? However, the family genuinely seemed distraught to lose their son for the second time. Not to mention, Frederick was a mastermind in identity theft who preyed on desperate, vulnerable families willing to overlook the red flags in order to have their loved one back. That is quite the accusation. It is super weird that the family believed his story about the changed eye color and stuff, though. They really wanted to be convinced he was Nicholas for some reason. Yeah, like they accepted it to wash their hands of the case or something. Let's not get too distracted by this creepy imposter guy. Are there any theories about what really happened to Nicholas? Partly because of Frederick's claims after being arrested, many people have come to the conclusion that Nicholas's family is responsible for what happened to him. The fact that they didn't report him missing for three days when he was supposedly trying to get a ride home that night strikes people as suspicious. Jason's report of seeing Nicholas trying to break into the garage a few months later also didn't sit right. Could he have been under the influence of drugs and hallucinating, or at the very least not thinking clearly? Or was Jason trying to convince police Nicholas was well and alive to divert suspicion away from foul play? Some even go as far to suggest Beverly knew Jason had killed Nicholas and helped cover it up to protect her oldest son. Shortly after the truth about Frederick came out and he was arrested, Jason died from a cocaine overdose. It's unknown whether or not his death was accidental or a suicide. For many, the timing of it seems suspicious, but likely Jason was feeling some sort of guilt regardless of whether or not he killed Nicholas. Remember, he told his little brother to walk home by himself that day, which resulted in his disappearance. Jason had been questioned multiple times by the authorities and private investigator during the original investigation, but no conclusion has ever been made about his involvement. Jason's story about seeing Nicholas breaking into the garage is super suspicious to me. If your lost little brother is outside, you aren't going to stand at the window calling police waiting for them to get there. A normal reaction would be to run out there and bring him inside. I don't think he ever saw Nicholas that day. I'm not sure if he killed him, though. It was for sure made up, and it could have been purposely made up, or he was just under the influence of drugs because he was a drug addict. I have a feeling the family was involved, or they at least know more than they're telling. What other theories are there, though? Alternatively, it is possible Nicholas was really kidnapped walking home that day. Until recently, 1994 held the record as the most deadly year in San Antonio, Texas due to violent crime. 
Around 100 children are abducted by strangers each year. While that is less than 1% compared to the abductions committed by someone the child knows, it's not impossible. They never found any evidence of the kidnapping, but honestly, they didn't really look until a week later, and by then, any evidence they may have found would have been compromised. This is another example of why all missing children should be taken seriously from the very start. Even if they are runaway, do everything you can to find them. This is one of my biggest pet peeves. I hate when police delay any kind of investigation because they assume the kid ran away. It's a child out in the dangerous world with no resources or supervision. Even if they did run away, go find them. There's no reason to delay a search for a quote-unquote runaway child. Even if they left on their own, they're still a teen and they're still naive and it's not safe. I agree. Are we in agreement that Nicholas is dead then? I mean, either way. The final possibility is the real Nicholas Barkley is still out there somewhere. It's unlikely he's still alive and safe, but regardless of whether he did run away, was taken, or if he made it home to a worse fate, someone out there must have seen him at some point. Here's everything we know thanks to his listing on the Charlie Project website. He went missing from San Antonio, Texas on the 10th of June in 1994, but wasn't reported missing until the 13th. He was a small-built 13-year-old white boy with blue eyes, light brown hair that looked almost blonde with a gap between his front teeth. His height was 4'8 at the time of his disappearance, and he weighed somewhere around 80 pounds. On the day he went missing, he was wearing a white t-shirt, black shoes, pink backpack, and purple pants. He had three rough homemade tattoos, the letter J on his left shoulder, a T between his left thumb and forefinger, and the letters LN on the outside of his left ankle. Nicholas was also diagnosed with ADHD. He would be 41 years old now. You can find an age-progressed photo of what he might look like on the Charlie Project's website. It's been 28 years, but cases have been solved after longer. It's never too late. Exactly. Anything's possible, especially with the new technology we have now. Where does the case stand now anyway? The case is pretty much completely cold now, although private investigators still seem to be actively working on it. Some hope advancements like social media might provide new leads not yet explored. The truth is, we may never know what happened to Nicholas Barkley. As for the imposter, if you thought finally ending up in prison might help change Frederick's ways, you would be wrong. In fact, he kept up his nonsense behind bars, making hundreds of collect calls to the authorities, claiming that he had information about active missing persons cases. This guy is willing to do anything for a little attention. He's now 47 years old and living as a free man married with children of his own. He is still to this day enjoying the attention that being a notable criminal celebrity has brought him. Documentaries, interviews with The New Yorker, and the odd appearance on primetime TV. Most people have lost any hope of finding out what truly happened to Nicholas that day. Largely because the focus of this case has been diverted to the con man who jumped in and took his place. No one cared about Nicholas or his family until the made-for-TV events of Frederick Borden got the world's attention. But even with a global spotlight on this case, most have somehow still managed to lose sight of who really matters in this case. Let's not overlook Nicholas Barclay yet again. Nicholas Barclay is still missing, along with thousands of other children. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMEC, offers a variety of resources, 
including the distribution of pictures and posters of missing children nationwide. They also provide information and technical assistance to citizens and the communities. In addition, they provide training, technical assistance, and technical support to state missing children's clearinghouses and to the state and local law enforcement agencies. For more information on the current missing children, go to www.missingkids.com or call 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? Let's talk about the imposter of the stone world, pyrite, better known as fool's gold. Sometimes pyrite has a reputation as undesirable simply because of its ability to trick people into thinking they struck it rich. However, looking at it that way will only serve to overlook the really positive ways in which pyrite can enhance your life. It can enhance confidence, success, and abundance. Not to mention, Fool's Gold is a very powerful and unique protection stone. It's even known to encourage the possessor to become bolder and more assertive when it comes to protecting loved ones, their community, and the planet as a whole. So, if you have something coming up that involves elevating your life, grab a pyrite stone and carry it with you. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time... time. Stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.